Q&A number four was presented by a panel on August 6, 2015 at Gutenberg College's Summer Institute, Reunion, Tanakh and the Gospel of Matthew. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a nonprofit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. The following recording was made in a classroom setting, and technical difficulties resulted in some reduction in sound quality. I have a question for Ron about verse 44 in Matthew. The conclusion I, I guess you drew was that whether the rock fell on you or whether you fell on it, the outcomes were the same. But when I read that sentence and the word but suggests to me that there should be a different outcome, could not, when you fall on the rock, you may be broken, but you repent, be a good outcome, and the but suggests that if it crushes you, it's a negative outcome? I see what you're saying. Okay, so I, I guess I have a couple things to say. I have no objection to that as an idea. That is, that would make sense. If he was saying something like that, that could make sense. So the question is how to interpret that first phrase, he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. Like I say, I'm inclined to see the roots of that in that thing in Isaiah, and I'm pretty sure that the picture in Isaiah is a negative one. Many will stumble over them, they will fall and be broken, they will even be snared and caught, when it seems to be a contrast to God becoming a sanctuary. Either he's going to be a sanctuary or he's going to be something that you will stumble over and to your destruction. So between those two options, I'm inclined to see the way I said it, but in principle, I don't have any objection to what you're saying. The but in that case, that in my experience, a word like that is fairly flexible. It kind of takes on in the context the color of what's going on. So I think I could point you to other places where the word that is being translated but here could be saying something that's not intended to be a black and white contrast, but rather almost ironically saying you do X and... A bad thing will result. But if you do why, you know what happens. A bad thing results too. <laughs> so, so I think I would lean in the direction that I went. But I, I see what you're saying, and that's certainly worth considering. So just following that up, it looks like it might be the word day, D, epsilon, delta, yeah, epsilon. Yeah, I have Greek Arabic. And so that could, in some translations, do go with the word and, and that right. is how Earl went with it. That, well, that's the direction I went with it, was, yeah. was and. So not two contrasting ideas. Yeah, I was just being cautious because I didn't actually remember what the word was there. But if it's de, de is actually, I could point you in a number of places where people will translate de and. So yeah. it's not a strong contrast word. There are stronger contrast words in Greek. Earl, you mentioned at the end that commented on the rebelliousness of Jonah. And do you see that as being part of what's being tapped into when the book of Jonah is being referred to? Not necessarily. Okay. That's a good point that Dan brought up that I want to continue to think about. But my guess would be, I hadn't really even thought about that, quite frankly. And I just, I, I find that, gee, that's interesting. 
But at this point, I might go with, because of the paucity of the evidence to that effect, to go that direction, that I would stick with Jesus simply referring to the experience in the belly of the whale with respect to Jonah himself. And then it's the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba that he wants to use really to goad the scribes and Pharisees to think about themselves. The thing I've noticed this time that I had never noticed before, because I've always assumed that when he said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And he begins that with four. So no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah, four. And I've always taken that to be him defining what the sign is. Mm -hmm. So that I'm going to give it the sign of Jonah for there's this parallel here, and that's what I mean by the sign of Jonah. But four doesn't have to mean four. And it occurred to me that we already know everything we need to know to know what the sign of Jonah is before we get to that point. That the sign, cause the, and that's where Luke was helpful to me because he says Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites. And I thought, how was Jonah assigned to the Ninevites? And it was actually studying the other passage where I realized that sign can mean just it's anything that signifies something. And so Jonah coming from God to tell the Ninevites, 40 days and you're gone. He was signifying their condemnation. He was signifying their judgment. And so it occurred to me then, that's what he's doing in Matthew Jesus is going to be the signification of their condemnation and their judgment. Namely, his resurrection is going to be the signification of their judgment. It's not the signification of everybody's judgment, but he's not talking to everybody. He's talking to them. And the men of Nineveh are going to stand up and judge them. The queen of Sheba will stand up and judge them at the judgment because they listen, but you dudes ain't listening. And you've had plenty of evidence and ample exposure. Could I ask you then... I thought I was following you, but I missed it right at the end there. So let let me say it in another way, if if it's okay. okay. Sure. Because if I wasn't clear, that's what I was trying to say. Okay, okay. (laughs) Well, you were letting us do all the talking. (laughs) Well, okay. Is that Jonah's the sign. Okay, fine. The Ninevites and Queen of Sheba are commentary on the sign. And Jonah, and just as Jonah's proclamation to the Ninevites as a human being coming with a biblical message of God according to the purposes of Yahweh was assigned to, was signify, you use the word signify see if I can figure out another word here was indicating to the Ninevites that they were under the condemnation of God when Jesus goes into the ground after his crucifixion rises from the dead that demonstrates he is, I'll throw out another bomb for you here okay qualified to be the son of God and the king of Israel and the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, that then will indicate that the Pharisees and scribes are condemned people as the Ninevites were being indicated to them by Jonah that they are. Because they had not accepted him. Because they had not accepted. Okay, so I, I think I understood all that. I'm just not quite sure what is it that the Pharisees are rejecting? Is Jesus saying, you're not going to pay any attention, the sign that you're going to get is the resurrection, and you're not going to pay any attention to it? Or Basically, he- yeah. Because this is an evil and adulterous generation that is seeking a sign from me. I'll give you your sign, but it's not going to be a sign that's going to convince you. It's going to be a sign that's going to condemn you. 
he's assuming they will continue in the same spiritual, moral, theological condition that they're yeah. in right now, which is abject hostility towards God in the midst of their following the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, I got you. And then the Ninevites, the comments on, by the Ninevites and, about the Ninevites and the Kleneshava contribute to that by their commentary on what he's just said about the sign of Jonah. Can I ask if nobody has a question at the moment? Does anybody have anything to say about what came up in your discussions about Psalm 118 and the thing that I just talked about? Did anybody say anything that would be like different than what I was saying or information that I did not bring into? I'd be interested in if there's anything that anybody knows or thought about this that, was, that would contribute something that I didn't talk about because I'm interested in what people had. So is there anything like that? There was a lot of discussion about a tense of a verb, and I didn't really understand a lot of it, but it seemed like it, the interpretation was different in the sense that in 118 it was the stone never got used, and in Jesus' the stone got used. So I don't know. That's my simplistic explanation of you're, what you're happened. Nodding, so. um, or go a different direction. You were going to di- different, different direction. I believe that Song 118 is part of the Song of Ascents. So these people, they sang this every time they were there. So they knew all the songs. I mean, all, there wasn't new news to them, so they'd been singing it every time. But they were, the Song of Ascents were going up to Jerusalem. So that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> well, why don't we go back to the verb, haita is the Hebrew word that could be translated in he is or he was, depending upon what aspect you want to get to it. The stone is the, and then it's rosh peneh, the head of the corner, which right. we were playing with in terms of capstone, cornerstone, right. kind of arrived at the cornerstone. Same thing in the, in the Septuagint. And then you've got the Septuagint with a, uh, the heiress of Genemai, a Genefe, which could be either be or became. So it's this, it's this distinguishing between, is the author talking about something is or something is becoming? And there really is a significant difference between those two. Because if the stone is the cornerstone, but even before it becomes the cornerstone, it gets thrown out then it's the is part. Or is the stone the cornerstone It gets thrown out, and then it, but it becomes the cornerstone is a different idea. And did you decide on one of those? I think the decision was they were different. That even Jesus is using it in a different way, slightly different way from, from Psalm 118. Earl, can you give an example of when ta is not it was, but what is it is? Is that fairly common? Yeah, great question. Not necessarily, but I'm just thinking the flexibility of language is, up, is such that I wasn't there during that time when that psalm was written. Right. So I don't know for sure if the verb haya actually could, was ambiguous, depending upon, and it's only the context that would help one to decide whether or not it ought to be be or become. I think in first-year Hebrew, you probably learn it's 
is. You'd learn it was, usually it's past tense. You're right, yeah. sorry. It's the verb to be, not the verb to become. Whereas in first year Greek, you learn that genomai can be either one or the other. It can be be or become. So the Septuagint is what really drop, brings in the ambiguity if you're going according to your first year Greek versus your first year Hebrew. Okay? So that's where the difficulty lies. So could you explain to me then, let's take the hypothesis that it's saying something slightly different in Psalm 118 than the way Jesus is using it. What exactly would it be saying in Psalm 118? We'll even look at the structure of the syntax, both Hebrew and Greek. It's wild and crazy. But one expects that in the Psalms, because in the Psalms it seems the authors love to run loose and fast with their Greek syntax just because it's poetry. It's not necessarily narrative where things are just a flow that you expect in Hebrew narrative versus Hebrew poetry. The verse, the um, original was written in Hebrew. Hebrew. Then wouldn't that be the language that you would want to speak with in order to get it properly translated? Not a bad idea. But the Greek actually follows the Hebrew in its strange syntax. Yeah, word for word virtually. In this case, in this verse, it does. So it reads something like, Stone, they rejected, those who are building, it was Rosh Panah, the head of the corner. That's literally how it reads. Greek, basically the same thing. And there's even a preposition before stone that could indicate purpose. For, to, it was for Rosh Panah the head of the corner. And in the Greek, the agenethe, it either was or it became, ace is the Greek preposition, which is a heading in the direction of, towards, for, kephale gonias, head of the corner. So, well, the thing is, is that how do, how do we understand each other talking the way we do? We speak in the vernacular and we're not even consciously aware of idiomatic expressions that we use, slang that we use, we're just granting to one another that we're able to interpret each other and use all this strange language and understand each other very easily because we're just immersed in it. That's how they did it too. We ain't immersed in, who knows, let's say 10th century BC Hebrew and Hebrew culture, and so that's where we have to work a little bit harder. Or even 3rd century Hebrew-Greek culture with the translation of the Septuagint, and we're having to work that much harder. Yeah, but great question. So, Earl, am I just, just so you understand where I'm coming from? 30 years ago, I knew enough Hebrew <laughs> that I was teaching a first-year Hebrew class. So my Hebrew has gotten quite rusty, so I might have just made this up, but this is Hayata Lurosh, and I seem to recall Haya plus La as being an expression that implied becoming. Wow. So, okay, uh, teacher. Well, no, no, I could be wrong. Look, 30 years ago, 30, count them, 30 <laughs> years ago. But How are either of you understanding in the psalm, and maybe you've told me this, but I, are we talking about a real stone here at the time? Is Psalm 18 talking about a stone, a cornerstone? You, Metaphorical. Okay. Well, what I was proposing as a possibility is, no, I'm saying it is a metaphor, but it, it is a metaphor... Not that they created out of thin air, but there was something like that that had happened in the construction of the temple as he's come up to it, and they're using that as 
Isn't that an interesting picture? Let's use that mm-hmm. for the, what God has done for... The so there's a concrete reality that they're pointing to that they're then making a metaphor. Yeah. God, okay. That may or may not be true. I don't right. know what Earl thinks about that, but I am saying it's metaphorical. It's yeah, not if about I'm remem- a rock. If I'm remembering vaguely what I've thought about this in the past, I think that's what I have thought. And the, the problem I've always had is... How do you have as a cornerstone, assuming it's a cornerstone, so it's on the foundation, how do you have as a a cornerstone a stone that you rejected? You don't lay a cornerstone down, take it out, and then replace it with the one that you rejected previously. You just, that's bad. Formerly rejected has now become a cornerstone. That's how I've always thought of it. But I'm talking about an actual cornerstone that if you have formally rejected it and you've already built the building, you see what I'm saying? Okay. But... Gene, are you here? He pointed out, and it just dawned on me in our group, that in Nehemiah, when they're laying the foundation of the second temple, they're dedicating it and praising, but it points out, but the people wept. And so it dawned on me, if you had a cornerstone at the foundation of the thing, and it's been placed, but even after it's been placed, if the people are rejecting it because it doesn't live up to their expectations, and that maybe it's in that sense that they're rejecting it. But then that could be the metaphor then. You come to the cornerstone, the cornerstone that's been disappointing to people, but it is the cornerstone. Whether you like it or not, whether you're disappointed or not, it's the cornerstone that's been placed. That could be, obviously, it's hard to say. I had had a different picture. I had pictured the builders before you, typically when you're doing a stone wall or something like that, you get your stones and you kind of lay them out as to how are they going to fit together and all that kind of stuff. So I'm sort of picturing that they're gathering their materials and there's one that looked at it and said, well, obviously this isn't going to get anywhere. And they put it aside, but in the end, it turns out to be the most important piece. Or it could have been at the quarry. It wasn't the cornerstone yet. Right. So, again, hard to say. And what he was just talking about is we explored that also as a possibility that it's actually there. It's clear that this really is the cornerstone, but there's something inherent in the builders such that they go... We're not going to use that one. And that's the haya part. It is. No, don't want it. It's gone before it even gets used as the cornerstone. It's what we also explored, right? Is that a problem with the stone or with the builder? Oh, it's the builder. It's the builders. Yeah. I mean, the stone is perfect. Yeah. It's designed for it. It's just the right stone. And the builders go, no, it's not. Uh-uh, I ain't going to use it. And it ends up out in the garbage dump somewhere. Is a possibility. Or recycled. You know, I do have to say, speaking personally, that this week has inspired me to want to go back and work on my Hebrew in a way that I haven't seen. I don't know if anybody else needs that, but I think I got the thing about the cornerstone down, but when you brought up capstone, I have no idea how that would function and what would be the benefit of it. Well, I did some reading around to try to see what people were saying about this. And the picture, as I understood it, because it is talking about the corner, so the picture I understood them to be implying was somehow, I don't quite know. I mean, I understand what a keystone does in an arch, but the idea would be somehow it would be a stone that was like holding the walls together. It was crucial at that spot to, without it, things might fall apart. I don't, from an engineering perspective, I don't know what that would look like. And I don't, I'm not sure. And but. from a language perspective, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dan. From the engineering perspective, were they building arches on the Nehemiah? Good point. Well, it wasn't a keystone. Yeah, right. It would have 
No, I'm saying I don't think it was a keystone. But I'm saying I would understand what a keystone was doing. I don't understand what this corner thing is would be doing exactly. Near Dan, there's an arch from the time of Abraham that has a keystone in it. Oh, really? Okay, just got corrected on that. Wow. And from a language standpoint, Dan, the panah there, rosh, rosh means head. That's pretty clear in Hebrew. Panah, you look at the lexicons and they go, etymology unknown. So let's guess at what really is going on with this word in this context. And they're doing their best job. And if Carl were here, he might be able to you know, really help us out with that. We considered some other words that are very close in Hebrew to it, like faith, panim, panah. And the Septuagint seems to be very helpful here, though, because that word does definitely seem to be much clearer in its translation or be able to translate it as corner. So if we hope and pray that the Septuagint translators as Jews and very much closer to that time, you know, kind of had a better handle on the Tanah, then we can run with the corner, in which case you've got cornerstone, not capstone keystone. Okay, I have a truly crazy idea that I'm going to throw out there and then you guys can think about it. It's still Psalm 118. It begins with, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. It ends with exactly the same phrase. Seems like that seems to bracket this whole psalm. We're thankful to God. He is good. And his loving kindness is everlasting. There's a sense in which He's establishing something in perpetuity, right? A kingdom, a house of the Lord, perhaps, something. But he is being good and kind to his people for a long, long time. Then as you go through, you find that the nations have surrounded me, etc., etc. And things are, are all bad, but the strength of the Lord, it seems like the strength of the Lord is constantly providing them safety or something like that, or getting them out of the situation that they're in being surrounded by the nations. And then when you get towards verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This, i.e. righteousness, is the gate of the Lord, and the righteous will enter through it. I give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. So then here's the super crazy idea. The stone, righteousness, which the builders rejected, i.e. the nations above, have rejected righteousness, trying to kill off Israel. But the thing that God is founding his, the house of the Lord on here is righteousness, has become the chief cornerstone, in other words, the, in some sense, the foundation of the house of the Lord. Anyway, that's my super cockamamie idea. Okay, so let me take it a little bit further. Ron's shaking his head. Stop while you're ahead, Chris. I was going to say something snarky. I decided not to. (laughs) When you get up to Matthew, and we're talking about the parable, the failure of the vine growers is that they're not producing any harvest, okay? There's a sense in which the vine growers presumably are the leaders of Israel, is the way that you were taken in, and it seemed to make sense to me. The leaders of Israel are not producing any harvest. They are not, in some sense, helping the people of Israel become righteous in some sense. So is it possible that when Jesus is quoting this stone, which the builders rejected, basically he's saying, you guys have rejected righteousness. The stone which the builders rejected was righteousness, and you have also rejected it. And because you have rejected righteousness, you are going to be condemned in some sense. So that is the fullness of my craziness, and you guys can take it from there. 
So in that case, not that this is proof against it, but the thing that I said about what Peter said in Acts then is not true. Peter is making a new application of Psalm 118 when he says that Jesus is the stone that you rejected. So that's fine, but the way I was picturing it is Peter has picked up the, on what Jesus was saying and is making the same point. He could be saying something different. That's fine. That would be a very a weakness of the perspective that I am taking. I agree. Unless Peter is using simply a figure of speech like a metonymy that Jesus is the means. It depends upon what, how you want to define or, or interpret righteousness in Psalm 118. That's always a, a point. Moral purity, uh, forgiveness, even stuff like that. And then Jesus is associated with that by Peter when Peter knows that ultimately back in Psalm 118 it was the Hebrew word tzedakah that is being referred to there and he'll just figure that his readers will be able to make that association for themselves too. The word, is that word yeah, good question. It gets translated righteousness. It gets translated in the, the Hebrew, the, the Greek uh, cor- correlated word gets translated sometimes as justification or righteousness in the New Testament. It becomes that all-important word, dikaiosune, in the New Testament that Paul loves to use, especially in Romans, and that we end up spending a lot of time trying to figure out exactly what he's saying. Yeah. And I usually translate it, if it's pretty clear that he's not talking about moral perfection, which that word could refer to. For example, Genesis 15:6, And Abraham believed Yahweh, and it was reckoned to him accounted to him as tzedakah. What really was accounted to him? Well, again, I'll just possibly forgiveness. Doing the right thing to obtain a good standing with God such that one receives his eternal mercy. Anything else? Shall we stop? Let's do it.